Welcome to the Economics Explained podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. This episode, I'd like to speak with you about modern monetary theory. This has been very topical in recent years. There's a popular book out at the moment called The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and How to Build a Better Economy. I'm going to be speaking with, uh, unfortunately not speaking with the author today of, uh, of the book, but uh, I'm going to speak with uh, a guest who's just as good, my colleague from Adept Economics, Ben Scott. Ben, thanks for joining me today. Hi, Gene. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Great to be chatting with you again. So I'd like to speak today, Ben, about this book, The Deficit Myth, because I read it recently because everyone's talking about this modern monetary theory concept at the moment. And it's something that has been generally dismissed by the leading economists around the world but it's become very popular with a lot of commentators, particularly on what you would broadly describe as the left. So it's become popular with progressive commentators in the US because one of the criticisms that's often levelled at progressive policies is that, well, how do you pay for this? How can you... How can the government afford to do this? And with the modern monetary theory, people, what they're arguing appears to be that the government, a government such as the US, which issues its own currency, that's the terminology they use, we'll talk about that in a moment, it doesn't face any real budget constraint. It can just print the money it needs to to spend on goods and services or or programs government programs that tends to be the that seems to be the argument and i think it was the congresswoman from new york alexandria ocasio cortez aoc who hinted at modern monetary theory when she was putting forth her green new deal program so this is this is associated with the the progressives in the US and indeed Stephanie Kelton who is the author of this book The Deficit Myth is a former advisor to Bernie Sanders and she, so she's worked in the in the Congress in that uh, that budget process so she's been involved in that and there are some interesting anecdotes she tells in her book from her days in uh, in Congress when she was an advisor there. So it's quite a fascinating book. Uh, how do you think I've gone so far, Ben? Does that make sense? What I've what I've said there? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I would add one caveat though to what okay. I, I think their MMT argument is. Okay, uh, you said that issuers of currency didn't have any budget constraints but i think they just they had they had one and that's inflation yes yes so what they're arguing i think is that the real limit to government spending is the amount of capacity 
in the economy and if you're at a situ if you're at a stage where you've got a lot of slack in your economy because you've got unemployed resources unemployed factories so idle capital then even though the government is printing money to finance its spending that may not be inflationary so they're saying that the only reason you would you wouldn't monetize your your deficits you wouldn't just print money to pay for your expenses is because that could be inflationary because we've got more money chasing only so many goods and services and that pushes all the prices up so so she's arguing inflation is the that's the real constraint so yes yeah that's something that i meant to say earlier so yeah thanks for thanks for pointing that out it's a good point why don't we dive into this uh, deficit myth and we'll just have a we'll consider some of the the passages in it and there are what i've done i think i showed you this before ben i've highlighted different passages from the Kindle edition of it, the passages that I think best summarise what she's, what Stephanie Kelton is talking about. So the first one, the first passage I'd like to discuss, and this is what I referred to before, the US issues a freely flow... I better start that again. So the first passage I'd like to discuss is this one. The US issues a freely floating fiat currency so it doesn't need to tax or borrow before it can spend. Now, this is really interesting. So what Stephanie Kelton is saying is that Congress can pass laws that commit the government to spending a certain amount of money and they don't have to worry themselves necessarily about where that money is going to be coming from. If the government commits to spending another trillion or two trillion, then it's up to the the Treasury and the Federal Reserve to, to pay the bills. And there is some truth to that. It's not completely wrong what she's saying because the Federal Reserve can credit the government's account with, with the money that it needs for, to spend. Now, I don't know enough about the mechanics of the US system to talk about precisely how it works, but I think at a conceptual level, she is correct that the government, the US government, could actually get hold of the dollars it needs to spend because the Federal Reserve can always just credit the account of the government with the with the dollars. It can create them with a keystroke, I think is the way that Stephanie Kelton describes it. And there's some truth to that. That's that's right. And what we've seen, particularly with the response to the coronavirus crisis, is the Federal Reserve has created massive amounts of money to assist the with the uh, the economic response to the pandemic. So trillions of dollars, I think it is, to uh, trillions of dollars in loans 
for all of these different programs to uh, to help support businesses. And they're also buying government bonds, corporate bonds. Our own Reserve Bank here in Australia is buying government bonds. Some it's bought some fifty billion dollars, I think it is. The uh, that was the figure reported in a speech by the Governor Phil Lowe the other day. So what we've got is we've got central banks such as the Federal Reserve in the US and Australia's Reserve Bank, they are creating money out of thin air to help with the government's economic response to the coronavirus. And just as they did or just as the Federal Reserve especially did and the European Central Bank, Bank of Japan, just as they did in response to the financial crisis. So this is not something that is completely crazy. And this is, this is where I think the discussion about modern monetary theory gets really interesting because there is some logic to what Stephanie Kelton's saying but I, like many economists, are concerned about just how far you can push that because ultimately there is this constraint of inflation and you do have to worry about getting into a situation where the public no longer trusts the central bank to keep inflation low and you end up with expectations of inflation increasing and you can end up in an inflationary spiral. So an inflationary spiral and you have both high inflation and high unemployment that we saw in the 70s and 80s. And this is why we changed the way we we did macroeconomic policy back in the 80s and 90s and we had inflation targeting central banks and we moved away from financing government deficits by borrowing from central banks or money financing of deficits because we saw that that was a really bad outcome. And so we've changed the way we do things quite radically. But what Stephanie Kelton seems to be saying is that we should be thinking about going back to what we did in the past. So I think we've actually had experience with this, what she's talking about. Her ideas aren't really that new. They're sort of a pre-70s view of macroeconomic policy because she goes back to Abba Lerner. She talks about this functional finance idea, this idea that, Taxes and spending should be manipulated to bring the overall economy into balance. So that's one of the the quotes that she, that's a quote from her work. Okay, and here's another quote where she does mention Abba Lerner. This is the essence of the functional finance approach that was pioneered by Abba P. Lerner in the 1940s. Instead of obsessing over deficits and trying to force the budget into balance, Lerner wanted lawmakers to write a budget that would keep the economy in balance at full employment. 
Right. So it's about thinking about the overall state of the economy. If you think there's slack in the economy, you have unemployment, then by all means, run a big budget deficit. Don't worry about the debt, the deficit and the debt as constraints on your spending and feel free to just print money to finance it because that's what's going to be best for the economy. So that's that's what she's doing, I think. She's going back to that 1940s Keynesian view, and this is what Tony Macon, when I chatted with him a while back, called primitive Keynesianism. And I think it that's why a lot of economists are concerned about it because they think it could take us back to a regime that led us into the problems we experienced in the 70s, the the stagflation that they talk about. Does that make sense? Did you have any, does that make sense what I was ex- saying there, Ben? Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Uh, and I think the empirical evidence, uh, at least in the past, has just been overwhelmingly showing us in the opposite direction. Not in the opposite direction so much, but to not go fully alongside, uh, you know, big government spending. Uh, a study that I was looking at by Sebastian Edwards, a UCLA lecturer, uh, looked at, you know, very large spending habits in Chile, Peru, Argentina and Venezuela and found that, you know, and I quote, incomes collapsed, there was a runaway inflation and the currency lost most of its value. In addition, in three out of four of the cases, real wages declined significantly. And these are all outcomes that macro or that modern uh, mainstream economic models would have forecasted from, you know, increased government spending uh, of that of that proportion. So I think it's yeah, it's very much not frowned upon, but taken with a lot of uh, uh, taken with a grain of salt, I guess we can say. Right, right. Now I think why this modern monetary theory view has gained some traction is that the economy has behaved rather strangely in the last decade since the financial crisis. There's no doubt about that. And I think we're still trying to figure out how to explain what's happened in the last 10 years where we've seen well, we saw large growth in money supply during the the financial crisis in response to the financial crisis as the Federal Reserve, Federal Reserve expanded its balance sheet. But we didn't see inflation take off. Inflation's been relatively low, well, very low, and hasn't been in the target range of central banks. So central banks have been targeting 2% plus inflation or two, around 2% in the U.S., Two to three percent in Australia, and we really haven't seen inflation in that target band. Uh, it's tended to be a bit below that. And even though the unemployment rate in the US has got it, it before coronavirus got down to, well, it was under four percent, I think, wasn't it? Three and a half percent or something like that. You still didn't see inflation take off, and you could argue, well, there. There's probably still a bit of slack in the economy. There could be workers who could who could join the labour force, people who are who are doing something else, who are, who are uh, there could be uh, married women who could 
who could step into the workforce. Uh, so there seems to be there seem even bef- so before the coronavirus, and now there's even more slack. But there seemed to be still some slack in the economy and still potential to to grow. And so what the modern monetary theorists would say is that the government could spend more money and that it's but it, the federal reserve could create the money for the government to spend and it wouldn't be inflationary because you've got resources resources available and so what so what stephanie kelton is saying is that instead of obsessing over debt and deficits you should be looking at the state of the macro economy whether there is slack whether there are resources that if the government decides to adopt a new program, so say it wants to adopt Medicare for all in the US or a Green New Deal, it should be looking at, well, what are the resources available? If we did spend all this more this money, would would it lead to high inflation because we're there just aren't the the resources available and we'll be pushing up prices, we'll be bidding up the cost of labour, bidding up the the cost of uh, of capital capital goods. So I think that's what she's uh, arguing. But again, there's just a risk of how far you can how far you can push that, I think. Yes. Ben, I might ask you because I know you've been looking at what leading economists have been saying about this. What have some of the leading economists around the world said about modern monetary theory? Well, you have first the economists such as Paul Krugman, who have you know n- described it as sophistry. Uh, you have Larry Summers, who called it voodoo economics. So you get a very clear understanding of their stance on on mon- modern monetary theory. But on the other side, you have economists like Olivier Blanchard, who was you know, the former IMF chief economist who in his paper, Public Debt and Low Interest Rates, essentially questioned the mainstream view on government debt and questioned whether or not it's really as bad and as poisonous as we have thought over the past few decades. And it's not so much an endorsement of taking on more public debt, but he really frames it as a the basis for further discussions to be had on on the impact that taking on debt, particularly in a future scenario where interest rates are expected to remain low, uh, and how we can implement that in policy settings. So it's um, even you know amongst big economists, there's still much um, debate to be had on on the merits of of the theory itself. Uh, but I think in general, it's not leaning so far towards the inflationary uh, limit is the only limit that should be uh, imposed on, on government spending. Yes, yes. I'll have to um, link to that paper by Olivier Blanchard. Do you know the name of it, Ben? Uh, public debt and low interest rates. Okay, I'll put a link to that. But I think that's a fair summary because... I think in the long run we certainly have to be concerned about government debt and we have to be concerned about the risk of inflation. But in the short run, if you're in a crisis, 
there is a lot of capacity for government to respond, particularly if you are a government such as the the US where you do have this, uh, there is a possibility of uh, printing money, so to speak, and also in Australia. So I think there is some there is some capacity to do that and possibly to worry about inflation later on. So it could be that you you do adopt a policy such as this modern monetary theory in the short run and then try to deal with any inflation with higher interest rates later on. I mean that's that's one way you could you could look at it. Uh, but again it, it's risky and most of the well, I don't know any senior economic official in the in the Treasury here in Australia or the Reserve Bank who would actually be supportive of this modern monetary theory. And indeed the governor of the Reserve Bank, Philip Lowe, talked about modern monetary theory, although I'm unsure if he actually referred to it by its uh, by its name. He talked about it in a speech that he gave last month on the 21st of July, COVID-19, the labour market and public sector balance sheets. And I will put a link to that in the show notes. And Philip Lowe made some great points here. His main point is that there is no free lunch. The tab always has to be paid and it is paid out of taxes and government revenues in one form or another. I would like to explain why. And then he goes through a few examples here. It's a well-thought-out uh, well speech, and I'll, I'll, I'll link to it, and people can, you can read it in, at your leisure. But one of my, um, I think one of the, Really interesting points. It wasn't something that occurred to me. I mean, it's obvious when you, once it's pointed out to you, but it wasn't something that I've seen normally presented as a critique of modern monetary theory, but it's a very good one. Philip Lowe says, I will start with some central bank accounting. When a central bank creates money to finance government spending, it does so by crediting the government's deposit account with it. These extra deposits represent a liability of the central bank. And on the asset side of the balance sheet, the central bank might have an IOU from the government to be paid in the future. And then he talks about how, suppose the additional government spending is successful in stimulating the economy and this starts to push inflation up. At some point, interest rates would need to be increased to avoid inflation rising too far. If this lift in interest rates did not occur, inflation would rise, perhaps to a very high level. In this case, it would be through the inflation tax that the community pays for the extra government spending. So there is no free lunch. The spending is just paid for in a different way. Now instead, suppose that interest rates are increased to avoid high inflation successfully. Even then, there is still no free lunch. How the tab is paid through, though, Sorry, how the tab is paid, though, depends on the nature of the arrangements that are in place. One possibility would be for the government to pay back the IOU along with any accumulated interest at some point down the track. This repayment would need to be funded by future taxes. This is where I, th- 
this is me speaking, not Phil Lowe. This is where I think it gets really interesting. This is a very clever point that Phil Lowe makes. And he's able to make it because he's the head of the central bank, the Reserve Bank of Australia, the equivalent of the Federal Reserve Bank in the US. So he's thinking about what does this mean for my institution? And he says, if instead the IOU was not interest-bearing and was not repaid, the central bank would start accumulating losses as the interest rate it paid on its deposit liabilities increased and there was no offsetting income. This would lead to a decline in dividends to the government and possibly a future recapitalisation of the central bank. Both have to be funded through tax revenue. Now that's actually a really important point because what he's saying is that the government can, sorry, the Reserve Bank, the central bank, can credit the government's account with funds. The government goes and spends those funds. They end up going into the, the banks. So the money goes out of the government's account into the bank's account. There are reserves at the Reserve Bank. The Reserve Bank's paying interest on those reserves. I think that's what Phil Lowe's saying. So the money, this money that's uh, created, they end up paying interest on that when when it's in the the exchange settlement accounts of the bank so their reserves at the the RBA I think that's what he's saying but they don't have an asset they don't the the, the government may not be paying them back and it's not paying them back with interest which would help them cover the cost of that interest I think that's what he's saying isn't it mm. so I think that's a really clever point He's saying that money, modern monetary theory could undermine the viability of the central bank. So to get away with modern monetary theory, as Stephanie Kelton is explaining it or, or one reading of it, you actually risk the financial viability of your central bank. And this is a, the central bank may not be able to then pay dividends to the government as it as it has been doing doing here. So we have to think about what this means for the central bank. And I'm unsure if Stephanie Kelton's really done that thinking. I'll have to try and chat with her at some stage. I mean, she may well say, "Well, what does it really matter? I mean, it's a government-owned bank anyway." Who really cares if they uh, if it loses money? That may be what she she says. I I don't know, but but Philip Lowe is making a really good point there about how this is probably not. You know, that's another reason why this isn't really a great policy. How does that how does that sound? Does that all make sense? I think it's really quite interesting what how Phil Lowe's explained that there. I'd like to see more on that and the mechanics of it. Because I think that there's something really deep there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware that um, central bank accounting is actually carried out in that way. Okay. So Phil Lowe goes on, the message here is that somebody always pays. It's cert- it is certainly, sorry, it certainly is possible for the central bank to change when and how the spending is paid for, but it is not possible to put aside the government's budget constraint permanently. Where countries have in the past sought to put aside this constraint, the result has been high inflation. Phil Lowe does note that 
Despite notwithstanding this historical experience, some prominent mainstream economists, including Stanley Fisher, a former governor of the Bank of Israel and vice chair of the US Federal Reserve, have recently argued that central bank financing of government spending may be appropriate in some, in some circumstances. And these are situations in which, one, conventional monetary policy options have been exhausted, the central bank is falling short of its goals, and, crucially, public debt is high and the government cannot borrow in financial markets on reasonable terms. And then what Phil Lowe goes to do in the rest of his talk is knock down all of those criteria for Australia. He says that Australia isn't really in that position at the moment. It doesn't have to to worry about uh, about that situation because uh, the government, the Australian government, can still borrow borrow from financial markets and on favourable terms. And I think to the you know the US government can do so to a similar extent. Now, what I would say is that while we've been critical of modern monetary theory, it should be acknowledged that there is a lot of unconventional monetary policy occurring at the moment in the form of quantitative easing. And in a way, there is an indirect application of modern monetary theory to an extent because we do see the... Federal Reserve and the Australian Central Bank creating money to help out with the government's policy goals. In the US, it's creating money to lend to businesses. And in Australia, it's creating money to to buy bonds, government bonds, uh, for the Commonwealth and the states in the secondary market. And that's something that's boosting the money supply. That's something that is supporting the demand for government bonds. And it's indirectly helping the government with its borrowing task. It's keeping interest rates lower than they would otherwise be. So while we've been critical of modern monetary theory and we think that it's something that could have unintended consequences, we do have to acknowledge that there is a lot of unconventional monetary policy going on at the moment. And modern monetary theory, which could be, well, another, what I remember at the time of the financial crisis, there was this idea of helicopter money that the government could just deposit or the central bank could just deposit additional money in everyone's bank accounts to try to you know, stimulate the economy, you all go out and spend it. It just creates it out of thin air. That was one idea. That's not too far. That's just the logical ne- next step from what we've been doing, right? Okay, so that's, that's what I find fascinating about this modern monetary theory concept. We've actually gone a long way toward it already. So we're doing a lot in the, with unconventional monetary policy. The question is, should we do more? Should we do even more radical things? And this is where mainstream economists get a bit concerned because we're probably already pushing the envelope. We're probably already, you know, taking a lot of risks to try to keep economies propped up and 
and to stimulate them. And I think going the next step, that's where we're, you have to worry whether it might be too far. Any thoughts on that, Ben? Oh, I mean, I, I agree entirely. Um, it's just a, a question of, yeah, how far can you push it? Uh, and it's, you know, it could have very perverse consequences if, you, if it is pushed too far. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one other point I'd like to make, it's related to this concept of the uh, the fact that countries which issue their own freely floating fiat currency, so fiat means the currency is not backed by anything other than the promise of the government or by order, by decree. It's valuable because the government says it's valuable. There's no backing by gold as there once was under the gold standard. One of the points that uh, Stephanie Kelton makes is it's a mistake to apply the crowding out story to monetary sovereigns like the US, Japan, the UK or Australia. So Australia is one of these countries that Stephanie Kelton considers a monetary sovereign. This is an important concept. These are the countries that can essentially create money out of thin air and not have to worry about the consequences. Well, she thinks they don't have to worry about it. The point I would make is that even though you you have that power, potentially in the short run, you've only got that because in the past you've done the right thing. Okay, you've sorted your your public finances out, largely. I mean, the US, the US is, is a, I think it does have the privilege of being the global reserve currency. So even though it does have very high public debt, it still has this uh, ability to possibly to create money out of thin air, fund its uh, expenditures and, and not end up uh, in a situation where it, people are pulling money out of the US, the the value of the dollar collapses and there's high inflation, it could possibly get away with some of this. And it is, you know, there has been this quantitative easing where and its money supply has been shooting up. But what I would say is that country generally, so if we look at Australia, for example, and that's the country that we know the best, the reason we're possibly in this position is because historically our governments have always paid back their debts. We haven't had defaults. Australia, the Australian government, the federal government has never defaulted. And we've managed to get inflation under control and there's a lot of trust out there in our public finances in our treasury, in our central bank. And so this would give us this power, but I think if we started to take advantage of it and abuse it, we could end up with a, in a situation where the markets don't trust us, people in the economy don't trust us, inflation could start up and spiral because People come to expect inflation and it gets built into wage contracts and into co- other contracts in the economy. And 
it could be very hard to then get out of that, to reduce that inflation in the future. So that's what I think is uh, another problem with her argument. She's talking about monetary sovereigns, but the only reason you're monetary sovereign, you're a monetary sovereign, is that you've done the right thing in the past. And I think if you try to take advantage of that, you could lose the reputation for managing your public finances in a way that means in the long run you're not going to have to resort to massive money printing and which could lead to hyperinflation. So that's one of the logical problems I have with the modern monetary theory argument. Okay. Well, thanks for joining me today, Ben. Uh, pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay. We've reached the end of another Economics Explained episode, so thanks for listening all the way through. If you're enjoying Economics Explained, please tell your family and friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on whatever platform you are listening on. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please get in touch. My email address is gene.tunny at gmail.com. Until next week, goodbye.